This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everybody, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2018 Season, Episode 2, talking today about Darling and the Franks, Episode 2. So, last time I talked about what I perceived as a sexual undercurrent to the piloting process, it was the very first thematic element we discussed. Well, this time, it was just a tiny bit more obvious. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people dropped the show at this point. It's actually a difficult subject to have a productive discussion on, because anime and sexuality have a complicated relationship. To help illustrate the dilemma, I want to take a second and talk about the show that I almost chose for this season, and why I ultimately didn't. Well, actually, I was hoping that Violet Evergarden would end up being a good choice, and then tone-deaf Netflix went and bought the rights to it, and that was the end of that. I'm not going to make videos about a show that I can only be watching illegally, using clips that I could only have gotten through copyright violation, and then asking my viewers to potentially break the law themselves just to follow along with my content. So thanks for being clueless, Netflix. Anyway. The show that was topping my list after the first week was Citrus. I'm really not surprised at all to see that it has been popular, and it would have made a good, albeit different, choice. So to talk about this, I want you to know that this next part will have spoilers for episode one of Citrus. If you don't want to hear them, go on to this timestamp, and that'll put you on the other side of it. Good? All right. First, I want to talk about the main thing in Citrus's first episode that tilted me towards choosing it. It definitely wasn't the very unlikely setup required to get our rebellious outsider main girl, Yuzu, into the same house as her new stepsister, the straight-laced student council president, Mei. That setup was absurd. Anyway, there's a part where Yuzu stumbles onto Mei kissing one of the school's teachers. Scandalous. Except, this is not the kiss of two lovers sharing a moment together. It's a display of power, dominance, and obedience. This is not really lost on Yuzu, who will later confront her new sister. And Mei's response is to force a kiss on Yuzu in an even more aggressive manner. Okay, so, in case anyone's confused, that's sexual assault. A forced kiss might be on the lighter end of types of assault, but still. Especially in a culture that considers a first kiss a little more precious than we do here in the US, a forced kiss is a big deal. What got my attention about it, though, was the way it mirrored the earlier kiss. It reminded me a lot of the type of acting out sometimes seen in abuse victims, where they copy the same behavior that they themselves are subjected to. So I thought, wow, are we going to have an anime that includes a serious exploration of sexuality and sexual misconduct? I mean, anime in general doesn't have a great record when it comes to sexual assault. It's much more likely to get the type of treatment we saw in the first episode of Darling and the Franks where the doctor gropes the redhead, and she protests, and that's it. No consequences for him, no trauma for her. It seems played for humor as much as anything else. You eventually come to expect that from anime, along with gratuitous titillation, sexualization of minors, and a host of other unfortunate trends. Taken all together, anime as a whole seems to be saying, sex is either a joke or a marketing ploy, but it's not something we're ever going to treat seriously, or responsibly. Now, I know there are exceptions to this. I'm painting with broad strokes here, and I was hoping, based on this exchange, that Citrus would prove to be one of these exceptions. But then I remembered the opening credits, which have this, and this, and this, and this. And suddenly, I'm not so sure. Now, let's leave aside how damaging that is to the story. The unresolved sexual tension between the main characters and the question in the audience's mind about will they or won't they is largely dispelled right here in the credits. That is probably not a good choice. More troubling for me, though, is to show them kissing, 
over and over again until you start to believe that the whole point of the sequence is to show two girls kissing. Look, even dime a dozen romantic stories, whose entire existence owes to the developing romantic feelings between two people, rarely have credits that involve them kissing. Sometimes you'll go the entire show without showing them kissing. So to have Yuzu and Mei going at it in the credits like this is way beyond the ken. Now, because credit sequences in anime often double as promotional material, I'm left feeling like the creators don't think of this as a serious subject matter anymore. They think of it as titillation, marketing, a way to draw in viewers. I mean, even shows that have no romantic subtext whatsoever will still put in hints of girls' love because they know it sells. These credits don't say, come explore a developing romance between two different and complex characters. These credits say, teehee, girls kissing. It's clear from the first episode that the treatment of the relationship is supposed to be serious. But if the showrunners aren't taking it seriously, how am I supposed to? I'm not left feeling like the girls' affections are an interesting development that arises in an unlikely setting. I'm left feeling like those girls' emotions are a cheap trick to get me to watch more. So here is the ongoing problem with anime and sexuality. I can't give showrunners the benefit of the doubt. I'm always going to believe that sex is either for humor or fan service until proven otherwise. These credits for Citrus ruined my faith in the show because it's clear from the first episode that the relationship between Mei and Yuzu is supposed to be the main focus. If they're going to treat that like a cheap trick, then I'm just not on board, at least for the amount of effort required to do a show about it each week. So ultimately, I didn't choose Citrus, and I did choose Darling in the Franks. Well. After this week's episode, how do you think I'm feeling about that decision? <laughs> I spent some time reading the user comments underneath this video, and it was exactly what I expected. Some people bailing on the show or expressing disgust at the sexual overtones, other people defending it and criticizing the people who are criticizing it, and some people just thinking all the sex stuff is hilarious. But basically, no one talking about anything else in the episode. These comments are a perfect encapsulation of the problems with anime and sexuality and the way it divides the community. And like I said, it's exactly the reaction I've come to expect. Now this isn't unique to anime. Gravity's Rainbow, which was a novel written in the early 70s, is a landmark work, and some people consider it one of the greatest American novels ever written. It was selected by the Pulitzer Prize jury to be the winner that year. But the book has a lot of sexual imagery and themes, and an experimental style, and so the Pulitzer Award board decided to just not award a Pulitzer that year rather than give it to Gravity's Rainbow. So art in all its forms has struggled at times with society's expectations. Some people would say that's actually art's job. So where does that leave us? Well, I actually don't think that the situation going on in Citrus is synonymous with what's going on in Darling in the Franks. I've said it before in other videos, but I believe there's a difference between having sexuality, nudity, suggestive themes, and simply using those things as a kind of gimmick. Sometimes the difference between those two cases is pretty clear. Sometimes the difference is more a matter of opinion. To me, so far, Citrus's use of sexuality in the show proper has been appropriate. The tone has been serious, the confusion and affection genuine. Actually, the relationship complexities in the show are a lot more believable than a lot of the other details. Other people find it gratuitous, and I certainly agree when it comes to the opening sequence. So be it. Analyzing art is not like doing math. There is no right answer. There is only having opinions and defending those opinions. So here is my opinion and how we will proceed. Darling in the Franks does not contain sexuality. Darling in the Franks is about sexuality. We are going to assume that the showrunners are not including sexuality because they think it's funny or as a way to tempt us to come back. We are going to assume that they have a larger purpose, that they want to say something about human sexuality through the medium of a sci-fi anime. Will they succeed? We'll have to see. Am I totally off the mark? We'll have to see. For the moment, we're going to assume the best and analyze thusly. In this particular episode, most of my discussion about this will take place during the connecting scene, 
And at the very end, when I have some wild, wild speculation about what the future of the show might hold, based largely on all of the sexual theming. We're gonna talk about sex, basically, and we're gonna do it frankly. If this makes you uncomfortable, it's okay to dip out now. There was a time in my life when I wouldn't have been as comfortable with this as I am now. Currently though, I believe sex and sexuality is an enormous part of the human experience. And so the fact that various art forms want to explore it isn't weird at all. If art had nothing to say about sex, that would be weird. So we're going to treat it seriously and respectfully, and we're just going to hope that the showrunners take it as seriously as well. So for part one today, we'll just talk about the little prologue at the beginning, and then we'll talk a little bit about the opening credits now that we have those to examine. In the prologue, we learn that Hero doesn't remember anything that happened at the end of last episode after the actual kiss. And what's more, no one actually seems to know what a kiss is. We also learn that Strelizia is that Franks' name, so we guessed right about that. Unfortunately, it turns out that Delphinium is simply the name of Ichigo's Franks, so one-on-one -on, -one on that count. Now, thanks to that Klaxosaur attack at the end of last episode, the startup ritual actually got delayed a day which means that Hiro is the only one who got to pilot in front of Papa and all those other adults. The actually successfully graduated parasites only get to do it in front of this tiny little audience. I'm sure this fuels some of the frustration and envy that is later displayed by the rest of the cadets. Finally, in this brief scene, we see Ichigo use the zooming function of her Franks to look down at Hiro, and Hiro is not looking at her. So then we get our first look at the opening credits for this show. The song that plays over this is called Kiss of Death, and kissing is apparently a theme for the series. The opening includes a nice little procession of the characters and their names and their code numbers and their Franks' names. I'm glad for this because now we can simply call everyone by their real name, and that simplifies my life considerably. Now the names have a bit of a pattern. The Franks are all plant names, which we really shouldn't be surprised at. Almost all of them are plant genus names, just like the Carossus name for the Plantation 13 that we talked about last time. The actual Franks machines themselves appear to be visually inspired by some of these plants that their name represents. The Argentia are bright orange or red, the Delphinium are blue or purple, and Strelizia is a genus that includes the Bird of Paradise flower. Look at this image, and I think it's pretty clear where Zero Two's Franks gets its aesthetic. Also curious, I think, is that there seems to be some physical resemblance between the Franks and the girl pilots. Delphinium has its hair in its eyes, essentially, on the same side that Ichigo often does, and it otherwise has the same coloring as Ichigo's blue hair. Argentia has twin tails, just like Miku, and they're both a red-orange family of color. Janista has long hair protruding from her hat thing, which matches Kokoro as the only girl with long hair, and both are light in color. Chlorophytum has little purple things framing her face, just like Ikuna's hair does, and it also seems to have a shield of some kind over its eyes, just like Ikuna herself wears glasses. Only other thing that might be worth mentioning, as far as all these plant names go, is that the Delphinium genus of plants are all toxic to humans. The character names turn out to have a bit of a pattern as well. We learn that our red-headed woman's name is Nana, and the cropped-cut official from last time's name is Hachi. Well, those are the Japanese words for the numbers 7 and 8, and this whole name-as-number pattern continues. Ichigo's number is 15, and Ichi and Go are the words for 1 and 5. Likewise with Goro. His number is 56, and the words for 5 and 6 in Japanese are Go and Roku. Go Roku, Goro. As these two characters appear to be our most law-abiding, obedient type, both of their names being almost exactly the numbers that make them up kind of makes sense. Miku and Zorome continue that trend. I don't know exactly which numbers are supposed to make up Miku's name, but Mio is a word for 300, and Ku is a word for 9, with Kyuju the word for 90. Some combination of that, I'm sure. Zorome, as a word, actually means numbers in a row, like 111, 222, or 666. 
Now Futoshi's name may also continue the number pattern. Futatsu is a word for two, with futao is a word for 200, and then she is one of the words for four. So I don't know where the one or the 14 comes in that for his number, but there's that. Kokoro, on the other hand, has nothing to do with numbers. That is a Japanese word that means heart, but, but more than just heart, like heart, mind, soul, maybe akin to the power of heart from Captain Planets, that kind of heart. With Mitsuru and Ikuno, Mitsuru's name might be based on the word for three, uh, Mitsu, but Ikuno's name, as far as I can tell, is just a name. That pattern continues down to Hiro and Naomi, whose names are just names. I have no idea at this point what all that means. We do know about Hiro giving Naomi her name. So maybe he's given some other names, maybe not. We'll just have to watch and see. Now, besides all of the helpful naming, there are a few images that pop up throughout these credits, although we can't really decipher all of them now, but let's go ahead and talk about them. There is a code 000 that displays over a Franks that looks a lot like Strelizia, if it's not actually it. I really have no idea what that suggests. There's also a background of a swirling liquid and drops in red, which suggests blood or bloodlines or blood mixing, etc. There's also the red and blue X's in the name Franks, which, when overlaid the way they are, makes one think of two X chromosomes. Combine all this with the blood images and the few context clues we have so far, and I think genetic research, editing, breeding programs, and all that is being heavily suggested by this opening. I think this is actually supported a bit by the design of our parasites' uniforms. The red center portion on the guys looks like an upside down Y, while the girls looks like an X, which is a reference to the different shape of sex chromosomes between male and female genders. There is very briefly the image of someone holding the hand of the red-fleshed girl from our opening moments of the show. By the way, it's positioned in the editing. I think it's supposed to suggest that that person is Hero, but you can't actually tell. There is an image of what are apparently the nine parasites that we know as kids, in what look like hospital gowns and with each of their numbers floating near them as identifiers. Fatoshi apparently has always had food in his hand, but it looks like Ichigo is clutching a stuffed rabbit or a stuffed cat or something. They are all corralled in front of what looks like a massive gate, and that appears to lead to a large circular area, and there are other children and numbers behind them, and I am guessing this is supposed to be some of the children that didn't make it this far, or some of the friends that have disappeared that was referenced last time. Uh, then we see Zero Two enjoying honey or something else sweet. We'll see later that she is not shy at all about how much she likes sweet things, and we have constantly seen her sucking on a lollipop. Another sweet thing she likes is kissing our protagonist. The image right before that of swirling red liquid and the gold honey flowing together suggests another type of mixing entirely, but we'll get to that. Next, Hero kind of falls backwards through the air and is chomped by the beast form of Strelizia that we saw last time. Later this episode, Mitsuru will comment about a rumor he heard about Zero Two being able to pilot a Franks by herself, and he references the beast form of the Franks. Now taking that, the events of last episode, and this opening together, and it seems like that rumor might have some merit. When she's by herself, or maybe without the right partner, Zero Two can pilot the Franks, but only in that beast form. It's only after Hero joins her at the end of last episode, or during this opening credit sequence, that it turns into its humanoid form. Anyway, Strelizia joins the other four Franks, and they're all facing outward, as though toward an external threat, which suggests that there will be some camaraderie or joining of forces at some point. And then we see a few flashes of the interior of some building and a plantation, and I think we're supposed to assume that that's the interior of the plantation. Then we see a group of eight parasites different from the eight parasites we know. Their uniforms don't match the two patterns we've seen so far, so it seems like they might be four sets of parasite pilots from some other plantation. We might have some kind of rival Frank's pilot subplot in the future. Also, take note of the triplet of girls in the back there. Are they wearing muzzles? We then see a group of kids lined up in what looks like those same little hospital gowns. They all have collars around their necks, and these collars match the little anklet we saw at the beginning of last episode around the girl with red flesh. Uh, there's a couple flashes of the doctor and papa and the old man sewing circle. Then there's a very odd image of a broken mirror reflecting an eye that is somehow reflecting an eye wearing glasses back in it. You know, I can't quite work out the physics of that. 
Then we see Zero Two's horns and the little gizmo she wears for reasons we still don't know. Then we see what I think is the strange tree from the beginning of last episode. And I wonder if those odd ball shapes in its branches are supposed to be mistletoe. Mistletine, which is the name of the pilot's little quarters area, mistletine is another word for mistletoe. But the word itself carries the connotation of a weapon out of Nordic mythology. And the two versions that I'm familiar with, either the weapon or mistletoe itself, is used to kill a god that is supposed to be unkillable. Mistletoe itself has some interesting mythology surrounding it, but we'll wait and see if that's actually a thing in this episode before I wander off on that tangent. Considering how much plant symbolism we have, though, I wouldn't be surprised. Finally, we have a series of the Sterlesia Franks bending down as though to kiss Hero, and then it breaks apart to reveal Zero Two also coming closer to Hero. She is once again naked with just her uniform draped around her shoulders, which suggests again to me that her nakedness in contrast to everyone else is supposed to be important. Like it's a natural state with the uniform or any other artifice a disguise or a falsehood. Anyway, she sheds the franks and then the capsule inside and then her clothes themselves on her way to reach Hero. Clothing and especially a uniform and what it represents might simply be at odds with who she is as a character and what she represents to the story. That's the end of the credits and we then get on to the main part of this episode. So the structure of this episode has problems, I think, at least compared to the last one. The premiere had a great structure. It was very clear to me how to divide it into five parts, and the first, middle, and final part all center around the main duo, with the second and fourth, the shoulder parts, filling in our details of all the supporting cast and most of the information about the setting. It was very nicely paced, there were great callbacks between the beginning and the end of the episode, and it had character progression inside a single episode, something that's always hard to do when you have speculative fiction and you have so much world-building details to fill the audience in on. This episode was not structured as well at all. Really, the whole episode seems like it was only meant as a setup for the end, where Hiro and Ichigo have their tragic encounter. That scene is kind of the main goal of this episode, and I feel like everything else was just arranged so that we arrive there. Anyway, the episode proper begins with Hiro burying what I think we can assume is the bird from last time that hit the glass. Leaving a little flower on it seems consistent with our plant motif so far. Now I like this burying part for several reasons. The first is that they trust the audience to figure out what's going on without spelling anything out. The second is that it shows that Hiro is someone with strong sense of empathy. Now we've gotten hints of that already, but this is Hiro acting on his own with no audience. You know, there's a saying, who you are when no one's watching is who you really are. So this is who he really is. I think this is important for us to see in Hero after the last episode where he was being very distant from everyone else, where he was definitely withdrawn a bit. We now can start to believe that that was atypical for him, that that's not normally how he is, and it was extenuating circumstances that made him act that way. Finally, I like this bit because of the symbolism coming after the discussion of the two-winged bird from last time. I thought perhaps that Hiro saw himself in that two-winged bird rather than seeing himself as half of a Jian bird pair. He is a bird that has no partner, is too damaged to fly on his own, and is eventually crushed without a care. Him burying this bird might symbolically be him burying that image of himself. Thanks to Zero Two and his belief that he piloted Strelizia, he can now think of himself in a different way, perhaps even a gin bird that has found a partner that will help him to fly. Next, we come up upon Ichigo playing with a kitten and speaking in cat speak. You know, Ichigo is so often acting as the level-headed one throughout this episode, the beginning with her being friendly and basically girlish with the little cat is a good way to play her up as being sympathetic and empathetic in the same way that burying the bird just did for Hiro. This episode is largely about Hiro and Ichigo in the same way that the first episode was about Zero Two and Hiro. So starting off each of them with this very humanizing moment with animals is a very gentle, very nice little storytelling touch. Anyway, it seems that she's actually embarrassed that Hiro might have seen her that way, which suggests that she puts on a brave and serious facade most of the time. Perhaps this owes to the way she thinks she should act as the group's leader. 
Also, I just noticed that her hair clip looks like a bird in flight. Huh. Naomi turns out to be alive. Now this may sound heartless, but I would have preferred it if she had died. It would have told us from the beginning that the stakes are high in the series. Even someone as innocent or sympathetic as Naomi was not safe. Her being fine after what we saw happen, uh, it makes it hard for me to be as worried about the other characters as I would have been if she had actually died. The real reason Ichigo is waiting out there to ambush Hiro is then revealed as she asks him about piloting the Franks. He doesn't remember doing it, which just makes him want to do it all the more so that he can see for himself that he really can pilot. Ichigo, though, has heard the rumors and she is worried about him. Hiro don't care. Hiro just want a pilot. This little exchange, I'm pretty sure, is what sets up Ichigo to later be the one who volunteers to be Hiro's partner. It's a way to keep him engaged in the world again, but without the risk that she sees with him piloting with Zero Two. Slightly related to goals here, you would think that being able to stay with the parasites would be a step on the way to Hiro feeling like he belongs, but Ichigo goes and points out that it's awkward and that keeps it from being as effective as it might have been. I don't think she meant anything by it, but ultimately she still leaves him feeling like an outsider. Next, Zero Two has crashed their complimentary continental breakfast in a way that is surprising to the pilots, but at this point, probably not surprising to the audience. I think it's worth noting that the parasites are segregated by gender, with the five boys sitting at one table, the four girls at the other, and then Zero Two sitting at a table alone. This is basically the start positions for the relationships in the series. I suspect this arrangement might look very different in the future. Anyway, Zero Two shows us exactly why the credits had her dripping with a golden sticky something. It's also clear that she's not concerned with decorum or any notion of ladylike tidiness. Miku is not shy at all about how she feels about the honey or about Zero Two as a person, as she says that she's not a person, not with those things on her head. Kokoro, on the other hand, rather than saying anything negative, simply wonders if oh, maybe she likes sweets. Now Ichigo actually rebuffs Miku for this, and she's a little petulant about it, but she does knock it off. Now even though Ichigo has extra reasons not to like Zero Two, she recognizes that she's the one who saved them, and she's adult enough to let that guide her orientation to her. Or at the very least, she's not gonna let her squad members be discourteous. Ikuno, lastly, is really only interested in the details of Zero Two questioning the Klaxosaur blood, and stating that she thought nobody had single-digit codes. Now the boys' table, not surprisingly, has a little bit different reaction to a pretty girl licking honey from her fingers. Goro comments that she's ruining her good looks with the way she's eating, suggesting that just like his partner Ichigo, he places some importance on decorum and doing the right thing. Futoshi is simply amazed that she doesn't match his preconceived notions of her, but he isn't going to let that amazement stand between him and some second helpings. Hiro is seemingly only surprised that she seems healed up. This is the first suggestion that Zero Two might have some kind of healing factor or something, owing to the Klaxosaur blood. Zorome, different from the rest, just decides to approach her himself. It's clear that he was impressed with her piloting and hopes to ingratiate himself to her, but his false bravado turns out to be the wrong tactic. This will not be the last time this episode that he attempts to trade up to a new partner. Mitsuru, for his part, says nothing at all, but just kind of looks on with a knowing smirk. Thus, we get a quick characterization of all nine of these characters as they react to an unexpected event. And we get to see how someone who is both an accomplished pilot and a pretty girl either intrigues them or repels them. That is getting a lot of mileage out of a 62 second bit. Finally, Zero Two breaks the seating arrangement to go sit with Hero in a very similar way that she's likely to break the status quo of this group. Hero's not quite sure how he feels about her or the situation, and he's still kind of preoccupied with whether or not he got to pilot. Luckily, Zero Two has an absurd amount of confidence. Now, it's interesting to know that no one knows what darling is supposed to mean, especially coming after we find out that none of them knew what a kiss was either. Well, I say no one knows, but it's clear that Ichigo knows a term of endearment when she hears one. I also think she knows what a kiss is, if not quite that terminology, uh, but we'll get to that all the way at the end. Anyway, not knowing what darling and kisses are is not the end of this group's naivete. 
as none of them, including Hero, seem to grasp what Zero Two's antics and the way she looks at him imply. This, again, is something we'll talk about when we get to the end and my wild speculation. We finally find out that our redhead has a name and a job. She's Nana, the parasite caretaker. And evidently, she was with them back in Garden as well, and it's clear the kids like her and trust her. Now Ichigo, after the darling bit, seems a little less tolerant of Zero Two now, and demands that Nana explain the situation. Ichigo shoots a glare at Zero Two when she notices that Zero Two is trying to feed Hiro. She's also actually moved into his lap instead of being beside him on the seat. Luckily for Ichigo, Nana is here to force the seating arrangements back to the status quo. We also get just a little bit that shows that Papa has taken some interest in Hiro, and what's more, that interest is not secret if Nana is able to announce it to the room the way she does. There's also then a short bit with an elevator that I think must be taking them into the center part of the plantation. I can't help but feel that this scene is supposed to recall the geofront in Evangelion and its first establishing shot. Even the color scheme is the same. Anyway, Nana is warning Zero Two off from the parasites. She suggests that Zero Two has a pattern of doing whatever she wants, but I feel like we kind of gather that already. Zero Two, when looking out at the little city under the dome, doesn't have a feeling of awe, but instead she says that she feels like she's gonna suffocate in here. As the next part begins, we get a brief interlude with Papa and the rest of the Jedi Council as they discuss both the state of Plantation 13 and the fight that they witnessed between Sterlesia and the Klaxosaur. A little graphic overlay and a computer voice tell us that Plantation 13 is getting low on fuel supply, and from the graphic we can see this referred to as Plantation Magma Energy Stockpiling. We also get it confirmed that the plantations can move, and a rendezvous is planned with Plantation 26. This maneuver is referred to as kissing, curiously enough, and I think we can infer that some kind of energy exchange uh, will be part of that. The fact that kissing is a term that might mean energy transfer seems especially interesting when we consider the events at the end of last episode, which, coincidentally, is exactly the thing that all these gargoyles are discussing. Now, we also learn that our Doctor character may actually be named Dr. Franks, which presumably means that he's probably the creator of the Franks robots. He also apparently has a history of giving in to Zero Two's whims. Then they have an exchange which is kind of curious. They've studied the fight where Hero and Zero Two are both piloting, and they make a statement that it seems to be a rare sample without signs of physical aging. The very next line implies that that statement refers to Code 016, Hero. Now that's interesting enough, but the next guy doesn't like this at all. He says, mixing with the special specimen will taint her blood. She must be recalled at once. Another argues that she's shown in that battle, and so more investigation is required. So what's going on here? I mean, some of it, the part about the aging, will tie into my speculation at the end, so we will skip that for now, but what about the mixing of the blood? Usually that phrasing means progeny, two bloodlines mixing to produce children. But that only affects the actual offspring. The guy here seems to be worried about it tainting her right now. But what about piloting with Hero could potentially taint her or alter her blood? If nothing else, I think the show wants us to know that some kind of genetic monkey business is afoot. This takes us to the parasites in their divided changing rooms as they prepare for what will be our first understanding of the piloting and connecting process. The parasites are in various stages of undress. I think this contrast with the fully encased ape members from the previous scene is intentional. This parallels back to what I talked about with Zero Two and her nakedness in the last episode. There is actually kind of a ramping up of sexual quality to these next scenes. It starts in the guys' locker room with them fully clothed, and then they start to take their shirts off, and then we see Zorome down in his underwear. Then we skipped to the girls' room, where they are even more undressed, which then leads to the connecting process, which, despite being fully clothed, is the most sexual part of the entire escalation. Anyway, we get a little bit of characterization of Goto and Zorome here. Goto is very encouraging to Hiro, he's impressed by his success, and he's not threatened by this at all. Zorome, on the other hand, uh, well, he seems defined by having short man syndrome. His own feelings of inferiority make him act out in an aggressive, confrontational manner whenever the subject that he's insecure about comes up. I don't think they drew him as short by accident. 
Now, if their code numbers do represent something about them, some piloting potential or ability or something, then one can really see how Zotome, who has the lowest number out of the entire group, would be a little insecure about it. And he would especially be threatened by Hiro, who has the highest number amongst the guys. Having Hiro wash out in the past with Naomi was probably a huge boost to Zorome's ego. Having Hiro back in the fold, and having seen him pilot at Frank's already, uh, makes things even worse than they probably were to begin with. In the girls' changing room, we get a frank discussion of the connecting process, and the first hints that it might not be what we expect. It's referred to being like your body being stirred up from the inside, and like I'd become one with someone. Becoming one with someone is already a euphemism for lovemaking, and even without other context clues, I think we could conclude that there is something sexual about this process. When they are gossiping, essentially, about their positive and negative experiences with it, they could just as easily be talking about their love life if you didn't have any other context. Thanks to the next scene, however, we have all the context we need. Side note before we move on, but is it necessary for Ichigo to essentially be wearing high heels? I mean, the rest of the whole get-up I understand once we see what it does, but why the high heels? I mean, we do later see that Delphinium has a similar type of feet, but is that all that it is? Also, in that little bit before they leave the room, I don't think that Miku and Kokoro quite understand how Ichigo feels uh, about Hiro and Zero too, but I think that Ikunu's look there at the end means that maybe she does. I think just like her partner, she does more watching and observing than speaking. Okay, so the connecting scene. I'm sure this is the thing about this episode that has dominated discussion groups. What I want to point out first, and everyone keep in mind, that how sexual these scenes are depends entirely upon the knowledge that you, the viewer, bring with you. Because the characters themselves don't seem to find anything out of the ordinary other than the way the girls are kind of weirded out by the sensation. No one talks about it being embarrassing or blushing or some sort of anime cliche like, don't look. Miku does make a sound that catches Zorame off guard, but I get the feeling that neither of them found it sexual, just alarming. It's almost like they don't know what sex is. I mean, they do seem to know what a couple is and what being lovey-dovey must mean and it seems that they've figured out what darling may mean, but they didn't know what it meant at first. Hiro and the others apparently don't know what a kiss is, and they don't seem to assign any sexuality to this whole process, even though the audience is riotous over it. So, what if? This strays into speculation a bit, but bear with me. We know they're orphans, we know they've been raised by whatever government, military system they're in, and we know that they're tightly corralled, tightly controlled. It's possible they've never gotten any information that Papa and Dr. Franks and the rest didn't expressly want them to have. So what if they don't have a concept of sexuality or physical affection or attraction or reproduction or any of that? And I don't mean like real kids who hear about sex and know it's a thing but won't actually fill in the picture for years to come. What if they don't have even an idea that sex is a thing? Anyway. I will come back to this idea when we get to that speculation all the way at the end. Now, we the audience know what sex is, and the creators of the show know that we know. So let's just run through all the scenes with that knowledge. It starts with Miku bending over a seat as though she's about to ride a motorcycle or something, but she stops tilted at an angle that recalls a well-known sexual position. We soon will see that all the girls are posed thus. By the way, this reminds me that Strelesia in her beast form was similarly going on all fours. Presumably that mirrors the way Zero Two was positioned in order to pilot her. Maybe that's not a coincidence. Anyway, any chance of this positioning being coincidental or merely suggestive kind of disappears when the camera switches to an invasively sexual angle and the hip parts of the outfit actually flare up to become literal handles, not just the normal way hips might serve as handles, with the guys positioned behind the girls to take hold. Then there's the actual connection process. I don't think the choice of the word connection is an accident. I mean, the positioning and the girls' reactions draw a parallel to the sexual act of penetration. 
Our comments from the previous changing room scene fit that context as well, with the girls' alternate experience of being stirred up from the inside and feeling like they'd become one with someone. In fact, a large chunk of the dialogue throughout this scene could literally be about what's going on, but could also be describing sexual activity. Hachi's advice about the connection process to stay calm, focus on your partner's movements, and entrust yourself to them is supposed to be about piloting the Franks, but honestly, that would be pretty good advice for someone's first time in bed as well. He goes on to say, the key is to trust your partners and accept them wholeheartedly. Well, trust is one of the most important things in relationships, and that doesn't stop in the bedroom. All the exchanges between the partners could easily be about their first time together as well. Futoshi is uncertain, but Kokoro is reassuring. Goro and Ichigo are steady and communicative. Mitsuru and Ikuno are silent, apart from her panting. And Zorome is proud of himself, for maybe the wrong reason. He's also aggressive, which kind of matches both of their personalities. You know, different couples have different kinds of sexual relationships. It's kind of a confluence of their individual personalities and preferences. It's different for every kind of pairing. I kind of feel like you can draw that same parallel to these piloting relationships. Ichigo and Goro are all business in the cockpit. Zorome and Miku are kind of a slap-slap-kiss archetype. Futoshi and Kokoro are playful. And Mitsuru and Ikuno kind of make me think of a dominant and a submissive. Hiro doesn't get left out either. I'm skipping ahead just a little bit, but there is some double entendre in the next scene where Zorome talks about the differences between piloting with a girl and, uh, piloting all by yourself. At the end of this, we see Hiro padding around in a training unit, and it shows us inside where we discovered that the controls are, uh, accurate. Once again, I feel like pointing out that no one seems to find this unusual. I also want to point out that after the girls have connected to their Franks, whenever they speak to another member of the crew, their avatar shows up as if they were the Franks themselves speaking, while when the guys do it, they continue to speak with their own faces. This seems to corroborate Ichigo's statement that the stamen has the initiative when it comes to handling because the pistol is actually connected to the Franks. It's kind of like the girls form the body of the Franks and the guys form the mind. That is very much like two beings becoming one. So looking at the scene as a whole, uh, yeah. If you were, say, six years old and had no knowledge or context about what sexuality was, everything that's happening in this scene would make sense. It would just be what's happening on the surface. You wouldn't find it suggestive because you wouldn't know there's anything there to suggest. And to me, the parasites don't seem to find it suggestive either, maybe for the same reason. Anyway, there's a few more world-building details kind of scattered in here. Hachi, it appears, has the title of Ape Strategic HQ Plantation Defense Commander, so we finally know his role, along with Nana's. We also see a little graphic overlay that shows up just after Miku makes her squirmy sound. You can see that Argentia's meters are fluctuating wildly, while Definium has high ratings and steadily increases, and then the other two have a bigger difference between partners and kind of a lower overall progress. It's the little details, you know? Now the next part is a series of short scenes that all involve just various confrontations, really just kind of setting us up for that last part, which is the main thrust of this episode. Now right after all the exercises we just saw from the connecting process, Ichigo confronts Zero Two in the little hangar area. She wants to warn Zero Two off Hero and gives the reason that she's simply not in her squad. Now we can guess that there's probably more to that, but Ichigo does seem to play by the rules and respect authority so this is not an out-of-character reason for her to give. We know, of course, that she probably feels something towards Hiro, even if she doesn't understand it, and we also know she's heard the rumors about Zero Two being a partner killer. Now, I think Zero Two might actually pick up a little bit on Ichigo feeling something towards Hiro, which is why she kind of gets close to her and asks, what are you to my darling? And despite Ichigo's kind of hostility, Zero Two never really loses her amused expression. Then Zero Two sniffs her and licks her, just in case we have forgotten her, you know, more bestial aspects. Well, Ichigo has no idea how to react to that. I think the fact that being licked by a girl discombobulates her, but the whole connecting process doesn't, just kind of helps my theory that the parasites aren't assigning any sexual overtones to that process. 
Anyway, Zero Two seems satisfied that Ichigo tastes sweet. She likes sweet things, and she also seems to know that that ends the confrontation. Goto tries to pat her reassuringly on the head, but she's having none of that. I'm starting to wonder if Goto might like or eventually like Ichigo a bit, like a stereotypical nice guy in the friend zone who might one day realize he feels a little something more. Next, we see a bunch of the guys back relaxing at their dorm or whatever it is, and they're talking about Hiro. There's disagreement about whether he really piloted or not, and Mitsuru drops the rumor about Zero Two being able to pilot by herself, which we now understand is not normal. He links it to the beast form of Strelesia, which, as we discussed in the opening credits, actually kind of makes a lot of sense. Now this just confirms Zotome's bias against Hiro, and so he immediately tries to start something when Hiro wanders onto the scene. Goto and Ichigo, as our resident do-gooders, try to break the fight up, and the way Ichigo says to him not to let him get to him suggests that this is a pattern of behavior for Zotome. His short man syndrome probably goes back a long way. And it's not helped at all by the next scene, in which Hiro learns that he has a chance to be promoted to Parasite like the rest of them if he can succeed in a mock battle in a Franks. It's no wonder that Zotome wants to be the one that Hiro fights. But Hiro, despite hoping he gets to pilot with Zero Two again, has Ichigo step in and once again suggest that he shouldn't be involved with someone who's not in their squad. Mitsuru kind of chimes in about this and asks her why it should be her volunteering to take their place. And I gotta say, between this and the rumor that he was spreading last time, I'm starting to wonder if maybe Mitsuru kind of likes to stir things up. Maybe likes to create some drama and sit back and watch. None of this matters, though, as Nana nixes the idea entirely, and it becomes Zero Two's turn to antagonize Ichigo, who preemptively covers her cheek in case of a re-licking. She is officially under Ichigo's skin, I believe, and I think Ichigo volunteering is as much about sticking it to Zero Two as it is about helping Hiro. Goto, by contrast, is only supportive of Hiro both at the news that he might be promoted and in the brief next scene as he's getting ready to head to the mock battle. Zotome, for his part, is quick to jump on the chance to be their opponent. And while Miku protests about this at first, his reasoning about showing them what he's capable of makes her glance at Ichigo and then agree as well. It seems that both of them feel a little bit insecure about their position in the squad. In the connection scene, Miku did protest about Ichigo being the leader. And I think this characterization on Zotome and Miku's part helps explain why they're so aggressive in this next scene. So this last part has two main sections, the build-up and the time-out. In the build-up, we're inside Ichigo's mind for the first time as the two of them attempt to connect and begin the battle. As mentioned, Miku and Zotome are fired up and plan to win, but Ichigo isn't worried about that. She seems to know that she can secure Hiro's future if she can just connect and show some piloting aptitude from Hiro. Our connection process once again has mirrors to sexuality, but I think we've adequately covered that. What's new this time is showing Hiro is entering her mind, as they call it, and also that she refers to drawing out his ability. The other parasites all show a mixture of reactions when they successfully connect and Delphinium starts up. Now all seems well at first. Hiro says that he recognizes the sensation. This is actually a callback to his description to Goto about how he didn't remember piloting with Zero Two, but he did remember how it felt. But as the combat actually starts, the connection seems to fail. Zero Two, with her ever-present lollipop, breaks into a smirk as though she was expecting this. Ichigo calls timeout, which flies for some reason, and we enter the second part. Now inside the cockpit, we once again have a bit of dialogue that could be about the piloting process, but it could also be about a sexual encounter where a guy has a surprise bout of impotence. I don't think the choice of camera angle here is an accident, in case you still didn't get what was implied in all this. Now Ichigo wants to know what the other woman did differently, and Hiro explains that Zero Two pulled him in for a kiss. Now this final scene is what I believe this entire episode was awkwardly structured to lead to. Ichigo, like the others, doesn't seem to know what a kiss is, but I would like to submit that she just doesn't know what that term is. Once Hiro describes it, I think she knows exactly what it is, and she knows what it's supposed to mean. Remember, too, like I mentioned, first kisses are a much bigger deal in Japanese culture. 
They are considered kind of an entry point into sexual maturity, and it's considered a very intimate act. It has a sacredness to it, not too unlike the sacredness surrounding one's virginity. Ichigo then has a sudden dilemma. She has some concept of a first kiss and its importance, and she's now in a position where she has to choose between doing that on the terms that she wanted and doing whatever it takes to help Hiro. Now Hiro doesn't get it, but when he says Zero Two said it was a very special thing, Ichigo's face says that she knows that, and she's trying to decide how to proceed. She then sighs and is resigned to choosing helping Hiro over having her first kiss under better circumstances. She knows that it's embarrassing and that you're supposed to close your eyes. Once they are actually face to face, we get the first blush out of anybody as she's startled and jumps back. Hiro, on the other hand, is surprised to find that Ichigo is trembling. Can there be any doubt that this moment means something very different for each of them? Now when she pulls away, we see a rare sight, a very uncertain Ichigo. She's almost afraid to ask if it worked, both for the sake of piling the franks and for the sake of her own heart. When Hiro feels nothing, I think she understands somehow that it means he feels nothing for her. There's no spark, there's no excitement, and her composure crumbles immediately. Her precious first kiss, and with a boy she feels something toward, even if she doesn't understand it, and he feels nothing. Ouch. How much worse, knowing that the kiss with Zero Two did work, did make him feel something. This scene is ostensibly a mock battle between Franks, but it's really a mock battle between Ichigo and Zero Two for Hiro. And Zero Two, it seems, was never that worried about the outcome. Now, to her credit, Ichigo wants to try again, but Zorome's aggressiveness intervenes. Unfortunately, his ambition intervenes as well, and his spoken desire to take over piloting Delphinium doesn't go over very well with Miku. We do get a nice bit of confirmation then that the trust between partners is key, and can actually fail at any point. Eh, don't worry, Hiro. It looks like you're not the only one having an impotence problem. Regardless, Ichigo loses the battle between her composure and her pain, and her desperate attack tells us that, one, the girls can pilot Franks alone, but two, it's very dangerous. Now her tackling Argentia ends the external battle, but not the internal one. Somehow Hiro does have a sense of the wrongness about he and Ichigo's kiss, as he says the gentle touch of her trembling lips filled me with guilt. The knowledge of his failure brings the bird and flight analogy back, something that had been largely absent this episode, and he once again feels grounded, just like the bird he buried at the very beginning. Zero Two, leaving the scene, seems unsurprised and pretty content with how things turned out. Then finally, a brutal last bit, as Hiro tries to apologize for failing, for kissing her, for not knowing what else to say. She isn't having it, and she's still crying, and touches her lips, the, the scene of the crime. She's upset for so many reasons, I think, but with it is anger. Hero failing her as a pilot is one thing. Hero failing her for her first kiss is another thing entirely. It's hard to believe that these two will be able to have the same kind of relationship after the events of this episode. Okay, so let's talk about goals and conflicts a bit. There's very little movement on these this episode, which probably makes the whole thing feel like a very incomplete episode to some people, maybe even like it's filler. It's not filler, there's a lot of characterization going on, but without a lot of goal and conflict movement, narratives don't seem to move very much. There's only any kind of progress at all on a single goal, which is Hero's goal of wanting a place to belong, but it's really one step forward, one step back. Being given the chance to become a parasite based on his mock battle means that at least he has that path still to find that place of belonging, but the failure and the way it happened might actually only isolate him further. Depends really how the rest of the group, and Ichigo especially, will react to this. We're going to add a pair of new goals here as well. Papa and Ape obviously have some scheme, some big goal that involves Zero Two, hence all the talk about tainting her blood and watching the fight with Strelizia and all that. We have no idea what this goal is at this point, but given that Hero was probably given his mock battle chance because of this, it seems pretty reasonable that whatever their goal is, it's going to affect Hero's course of the story as well. Then I also think we can add a goal for Zodome. He wants to be the best in the squad. He's competitive, he's aggressive about it, he's insecure about it, 
he wants to prove himself the best in the unit. Unfortunately for Miku, this is a much higher goal for him than any sense of loyalty. And he tries to partner with Zero Two at the beginning of the episode, and speaks out loud, like an idiot, about maybe piling with Ichigo in the future. The events of this episode by themselves really are enough to suggest that his goal could affect events as well. Conflicts saw very little movement as well. I'm glad that we put Hiro as lost the ability to pilot as a conflict last time, because it seems that is still an ongoing problem. Whatever the source of this is, and whatever it really means that he's lost the ability, it's clearly going to cause problems throughout the series, at least in the near term. There is basically no other movement on the other conflicts. We're going to add Ichigo Fallout as a new conflict. I think the failure with Hiro, uh, the disaster of the kiss, and her unexpected recklessness there at the end are all going to have consequences in the near future. Things are going to change, probably not for the better, at least not right away. So on to theme, we are still just talking about thematic elements that we notice at this point, not trying to nail down any particular theme. The sexual undercurrent that I noticed last time is now more like a sexual dam burst. We really went over most of it throughout the episode, so we're not going to rehash it now. But I do think we should pay attention to see if there's more than just that piloting connecting process that mirrors human sexuality. Sexuality itself might end up being a stand-in for some other concept in the future. Um, I think connecting itself might be a theme independent of sexuality. The whole piloting process is a little bit crowded with meaning at this point, but we should think of connecting in a broader sense because it might be its own pattern. I mean, Hero's main crisis right now is he feels disconnected from society and therefore from his own life. Connecting to others and society might be accomplished through piloting, sure, but it also might be accomplished through some as yet unknown method. Relatedly, we might want to subdivide down and think of compatibility as its own thematic element as well. I guessed last time that pilot pairs might turn out to be opposites, this time it seems that really it's them being the same that is the idea that's advanced. It may be that Hiro and Ichigo were actually doomed to fail there at the end because of a lack of compatibility in more ways than just as pilots. After all, Hiro is an outsider, while Ichigo is the squad leader, the consummate insider. Compatibility might be more than just a personality mesh. It might mean more in this story than just how it figures for the piloting process. We need to pay a lot of attention to that. Finally, there is some structure mirroring. It might not be a thing that they do repeatedly, but uh, in case they do, let's go ahead and take a look at it now. See, the basic structure of this episode is kind of a mirror of the first episode. We start with a male and female pair that are alone, each doing activities that characterize them, and then we end the episode with that pair piloting the same Franks. However, with Zero Two, he succeeds, but doesn't remember his success, and with Ichigo, he fails, and will certainly remember his failure. The contrasting results are accentuated by putting each of them at the end of back-to-back -back episodes. Structural mirroring is actually like one of my favorite techniques in storytelling, so I kind of hope that they keep this up. Moving on to what to watch for. I said last time that in this series, we're going to try to keep up with the things we've said we're watching for, as well as the things we speculated about. We learn a little bit about code numbers. We still don't know how they're assigned or exactly what they mean, but we can infer that they mean something about ability or potential, as Goro, Ichigo, and Hiro are referred to as double-digit elites. We still have a bunch of questions about Hiro, and the only one that got answered was whether or not he could now pilot. And uh, no, he can't suddenly pilot. Finally, we got just a little information about Ape that we were watching for, as far as what they do. We still don't know all of it, but it's clear that they direct the movement of the plantations, and that they oversee the whole experimental thing with Zero Two and Dr. Franks, and can make changes or instructions about things like the mock battle. So let's add some new things to this list. Um, there's a part where Nana is on the phone with presumably HQ, and it shows her looking at a little panel with Hero's information on it. Now we see some things that we know, like he has no partner or Franks, and that he belongs to the 13th plantation unit, right? But there's this bone heading, and underneath that it says, the third nursery lab. Now, I'm not sure why this is designated as bone, but it seems reasonable that this may be where he and the others come from. Above that line, we see his full code. 
Now the end we understand, 016, that's what they call them. The part above that, T3NL, seems in context to mean the third nursery lab, which also suggests that it's where he comes from. Then that just leaves the very first part, FP40. So we need to be watching to see if there is anything in the series that seems like it could fit FP40. Let's see, um, we'll watch to see if the beast form of Strelizia is really linked to 02 piloting it by herself. I want to know why 02 expected Ichigo and Hiro to fail. Related to that, does she understand something about the piloting process that Nana and Hachi and the rest of them don't understand? I also want to watch to see if Mitsuru tries to stir up any more trouble. The read I get on him is he might be a little bit of a chaotic force in this group. What is the little device that Zero Two wears on her horns? I should have brought that up last time, but we still don't know what it is, so let's keep watching for that. Also, what was the fate of Zero Two's original partner? Now, he is sort of breathing against his little mask when he falls out of the cockpit at the end of last episode, but we don't even have a reference to him in this episode. So, what happened to that guy? Uh, and lastly, I want to watch to see what the tree is in that opening sequence. I will be so delighted if that turns out to be mistletoe, but since that shows up in the opening and in what we guess is Zero Two's dream sequence or whatever, it clearly has some importance to, at least to her. Lastly, speculation. So once again, here are the things that we speculated last time. It was very, very small. The only thing that got movement at all was my prediction that the pilots would be in pairs that are opposites to each other, and it turns out to be the other way around. So, 0 for 1 there. Uh, this list is short, so let's add some stuff to it. Um, I speculate that we will get some glimpse of Ichigo and Hiro's shared childhood either in the next episode or maybe the episode after that, but somewhere in the near short term. I think they need to give us some context on why she feels the way she does, and doing that and relating it to their childhood, which is another detail we were waiting for, would make a lot of sense. Uh, I speculate that Plantation 26, that they're en route to kiss, will end up being the home of the rival parasites that we see in the opening, assuming that's what that is. Um, I'm going to go ahead and guess that Hachi and Nana came up in a similar process to the way the rest of the parasites did. They are a product of that system, maybe some earlier iteration of it, but I'm guessing that they are linked to it in the same way the parasites themselves are. Okay then, last of all, my wild speculation about the future direction of this show. The speculation is based on the following aspects that we have so far. The strong sexual metaphors, the parasites' apparent naivete about sexuality, the parasites' controlled upbringing, including the fact that they are orphans and have numbers for names, all the plant analogies and terminology, the ape concern over tainting the blood, and the ape comments about Hero being a sample without signs of physical aging, the fact that there seem to be a lot of adults but not many children, the fact that most of the adults are covered up, and the fact that the land seems to be barren waste with nothing growing. Take all of this together, and this is what I guess. This is a post-apocalyptic world, and that apocalypse, whatever caused it, takes the form of barrenness. A barren land and a barren people. See, I think we might have a situation like Children of Men or The Handmaid's Tale where humanity is facing a crisis because of an epidemic of infertility. Nothing has to kill you off if you can't effectively reproduce. Time will do the work. Thus, the Franks and the parasites and the connection process are all about finding a way to restore fertility to humanity. And they are in a race to produce more offspring before the existing numbers drop too far to support civilization. The children aren't orphans because their parents died. They're orphans because they never had parents. They were grown in labs and tubes. They were selected from nurseries, just like someone cultivating a strain of flowers. Ape and their whole organization is hoping to sow the land with these metaphorical flowers, restoring both the world and their people. That's why the top of the plantation has the biodome. It's a last precious outpost of all of the birds and plants and animals that they were able to save that they one day hope to restore to the world. The whole Frank's compatibility process is not just about combat, it's about finding breeding partners 
or finding bloodlines and genes that they can cross in an effort to produce viable offspring. This is why they are naive about sexuality. They are intentionally left in the dark about it. Can't very well have the children falling in love with someone unsuited and mating with them and screwing up the whole process. Heck, there might be something weird with the children in general, where just the process could taint them or otherwise screw things up. With all the thematic emphasis we've had on kissing, even that might be dangerous to this process. Or it may be that the piloting process actually physically ages you. Maybe that's what the old man's comment was about. Maybe that's why Zero Two's partner seems so much older. They're ancient and withered and aging because of whatever sort of fallout came from the disaster. Or they're simply aging because they have the technology to keep people alive, but not actually to produce new fertile young. The plantations then are a bit like Noah's Ark, a last bastion of life in a sea of waste, all waiting for the day the earth is safe for them to release their precious cargo back into the world. Maybe that is part of the symbolism with the birds. In the story, Noah knew it was safe to return to the world because he released a dove which came back with an olive branch. That's why both doves and olive branches are considered symbols of peace today. The parasites want to fly free from the cage they live in, and when the day comes when they can do that, the world itself will be made whole again. Now, I don't know exactly where the Claxosaurs fit in all this. Maybe they're a manufactured threat. Maybe they're related to whatever sort of apocalypse befell. Maybe they are a new species trying to take over where humanity has given them room. Maybe they are the source of the infertility, which is why they're experimenting with their blood inside of Zero Two, sort of like using it as a vaccine or like using a poison in order to get its antidote. Not really enough information on them yet for me to make them fit into this theory, I'm afraid. Anyway, that is the grand speculation, and I largely put it forward because of all of the sexual themes that suddenly cropped up in this episode. If the series-wide struggle is about restoring fertility to the world, then sexual symbolism becomes highly appropriate. We already employ it in our own world. The whole reason flowers are associated with weddings and the bride carries a bouquet is because it's a strong symbol of fertility and new beginnings. All the things that a marriage ceremony traditionally represents. Having so many flower terms and symbols in this show, combined with this uptick in sexuality, really only leads me to this conclusion. I've said before that theme can be one of the best indicators of where a show is going. This early in the show, it's really the only thing we have to go on. So that means that I'm putting out this wild, very optimistic speculation right now. Maybe we won't have to wait very long to see where I'm wrong. Till then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.